You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you're visiting with us, we believe that the Bible is authoritative, that when you read the pages of Holy Scripture, you hear the same voice that spoke the galaxies into existence. We believe it's authoritative, and, uh, and that's why we stand for the reading of it. We're going to spend one more week in the Beatitudes, for reasons I'll explain in a, in, a, in a few minutes. But we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5. I forgot to put the words on one of our slides. So if you have a Bible, turn open there. Use your digital device or just listen. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. So, originally I was going to just jump right into the next group of verses in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talked about salt and light. But uh, just after some converse, several conversations I had this week and just thinking about some things, I thought it would be good just to, to just kind of do a, not a recap, because I, I don't want to rehash everything that I've already said. If you've, not, if, you, if you've not heard the sermon series so far on the, of me just working through the Beatitudes, you can go to our website, you can read the manuscripts, can listen to the sermon. You can watch the video if you want. Uh, what I want to do is just explain two things. <clears throat> One, sorry. <clears throat> yeah, I just, I just I just coughed right into your ears from with my microphone. I thought I turned it off. Sorry. Uh, what I want to do is I want to I want to talk about the gospel briefly. I just want to explain just so so kind of you know where I'm coming from. What, what the gospel is, what, what it means to be, to, to be a Christian, what it means to be saved. And, and so I just want to do that for, for most of you in this room, if not all of you. It will be, uh, it will be just a, it'll be good for your heart to, to hear that. It's always good to celebrate the gospel. And then what I want to do is use that as the foundation and then answer the question based off the Beatitudes, you know, how do I know that I'm a Christian? And the reason why I want to do that is, is for this reason. Everything I preach, I manuscript my sermon, but, on, but when I preach, I don't say everything that's in my manuscript or in my notes. And sometimes when I say things off the cuff, I could say things uh, too strongly, sometimes too harshly. Uh, I'm kind of a passionate guy and uh, feel things deeply, and sometimes can say things wrongly. <laughs> so I just 
That's why I tell you, man, not just men, men and women, uh, go home and search the scriptures for yourself. Make sure what I'm saying jives with the word of God. Uh, there's, like, for example, I said something a while back. I, I don't exa- remember the exact details of what I said, but, but I said something about mainline denomination, church, denominational churches, and made it sound like as though I thought that if you want or attended a church that was a part of a mainline denomination like Presbyterian Church of America or, or uh, United Methodist or whatever, that you were not a Christian. I didn't mean that at all. I have pastors that I know that I'm friends with, consider friends who pastor churches in mainline denominations. So that's an example. I've said other things in the past, and I'll probably continue to say stupid things, and so just hold me accountable. Uh, I appreciate it, because I need you <laughs> uh, to speak into my life. So what I want to do is I just want to highlight the gospel. And by doing that, I, I want to share some convictions that I have that I believe come from the, word of the, the Bible. That I'm, the, the, these are hills that I'll die on. And I think what that will do is it will help you understand just why I think the way I think and, and where I'm coming from theologically. And so uh, let me state clearly from the beginning, that salvation is, and I'll have the word, words on the screen, salvation is a gift from God whereby a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. That, that's, that, that the gift of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a hill I will die on. I, I, I said this in the first service, and all the elders agree with this, uh, you know, the this, this statement, this is, comes from the Bible, but if I were ever asked to not preach anything, you know, concerning this, remotely close to this, I would quit. Like, that's just, I, that's the hill that I'll die on. Uh, the Bible defines faith in this way, in case you're wondering, what is, what is faith? You know, by grace alone, through faith alone, that, that we're saved in Christ alone. What does faith mean? Well, the Bible defines faith this way in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let's read it together. Ready? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what the, the, one of the definitions that the Bible gives for what faith is. There's a word, the Greek word for faith is a word called it's pistis, which means trust. It's belief. It's, it's more than just believing some things in my brain, it's, it's the kind of faith that acts upon what I believe. So the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so, I, based on that, I believe there is nothing that a person can do to contribute to their salvation so that they can be saved. To, you know, to have your sins forgiven, to go to heaven. There's nothing that you can do to contribute to it. You don't come to God's table you know, and bargain with him and say, well, I, I want the church uh, you know, this amount, these many times in my lifetime. I read my Bible at least two times throughout the course of my, my life, like from page to page. I, I go to church, I do this and that. Like there is no bargaining with God where he'll say, you know what, you're right, you, you should be in my kingdom. Uh, there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. And so it is by grace that you've been saved and, uh, through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Now, let me uh, just show my cards a little bit here. I, I'll leave the denominations unnamed, but when I first became a Christian, the first two churches that I attended, yeah, I attended two different churches, I want to, uh, my friend Kurt uh, would pick me up from my house and drive me to the church he attended in the morning. We were the youngest people in the church by probably 25 to 30 years at best, like it was an older congregation. That's where I was introduced to hymns. We sang hymns, uh, and that's how I fell in love with hymns in that church. And then, and then I went to a Friday night youth group that was hosted by a much larger church, completely different denomination. Both churches God used in my life in a formative, uh, positive way. I really believe this. I would not be the Christian and, and, the, and the man that I am today had not God allowed me to be shaped by the teaching and preaching of both of those churches. The first church that I, the church that I went to on Sunday mornings, I was baptized in that church. And so I think of them very highly. In fact, I Googled uh, the church where I attended youth group, and uh, the pastor, the senior pastor then, is still the senior pastor today. The guy's probably in his, like in his 80s. Like, this is an awesome way to retire. Preach while, you know, you know preach and hopefully die while preaching, or, or vice versa. Like, I'd like to go to heaven that way. Uh, he's still there. And so I just want you to hear that, that uh, these churches had a profound influence in my life. Sometime after about a, I don't know, a year or two after I was a Christian, I read Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians in the New Testament. And what I read, especially in chapter 1 and chapter 2, rocked my world. And I won't go into all the details because we don't have time for that, but I just want you to know, read it sometime and you'll see. It rocked my world. And then I read Romans, the book of Romans, and that also rocked my world. I asked my wife if she could, I was in the office, and my, I, I found one of my journals that I kept in high school. And I'm not a journal keeper. I really stink at that, but every once in a while I'll write some thoughts down. And I kept a journal during those first years of my, of my uh, experience of being a Christian. I spelled journal with a G, just so you know. I, I had like a sixth grade reading level when I graduated high school. So uh, just, just, you know, it's a testament to how God has transformed my life in so many different ways. And uh, it wasn't actually in that journal, it was another journal that I had written about a crisis of faith I was experiencing when I encountered what I read in Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8. And if you've read Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, you'll know, you know what I'm talking about. And it's, and it should be, and Ephesians chapter 2, and it should be no mystery as to this is why you hear me recite those chapters often when I'm preaching. Like Romans chapter 8 verse 1, that's life for me. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I was reading that, and here's why, here's why this is significant. Because in their, in their doctrinal convictions of both of these churches, even though they're very different, what the, the youth group was very emotional, very like exper very experiential, uh, shouting, hollering, tambourine, singing. I was just, 
And then, and then the church I attended on Sunday morning, it was like the only time anybody raised their hand is if they had to wipe their nose. I mean, that's, that's, how, like, that's how expressive they were. But both churches shared a common belief, and that common belief was that a person, a Christian, could lose their salvation. And that, that you were not eternally secure in your salvation, that you could walk away, that you could sin to such an extent that you could lose your salvation. And when I, what I read in, in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 and Romans, especially Romans chapter 8, uh, for me, it blew what, what those churches, it blew that to ashes in my, in my mind. And, uh, and this is important because I want you to hear this that I, I really feel and believe that there is nothing that you contribute to your salvation. That it's all Jesus. It's all grace. It's all mercy. And there are scores of verses that I could go to, but we don't have time for that. I, I'll, I'll try to put those in my manuscript, and you can, you can check them out on your own once it's posted on the website. But there is something that Jesus said that I think is pretty significant. Let's read this together. Ready? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, or out of the Father's hand. So what is this saying? Jesus said, my sheep know me, you know, they hear my voice, or he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and what? They will what? Never perish. He doesn't say I give them eternal life and they may not perish. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And what does he say? And no one will what? Snatch them out of my hand. And in case there's any question, he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So that was, that's a, that's a mind, for me, that's a mind-blowing passage. So uh, what does this mean? I am convinced that there is nothing, like I said, there's nothing I can do to contribute to my salvation. It is all because of a supernatural work that God has done in my life, and the evidence of my faith is seen not because I'm working towards it, but because I have spiritual life in me now. Does that make sense? So, so just one other, a couple of other passages just to set the foundation here. The the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, John the Apostle, also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. And in 1st John, at the end of that letter, he gives the reason for why he wrote the letter to these group of Christians who were experiencing some, some, some things that were going on in their churches. And part of what they were experiencing was these false teachers that were coming in, these people who were introducing different types of teaching, and people were leaving their churches. And so believing some of that stuff. And so John said this. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If you're taking notes, that's 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Earlier in his letter, John 
answered why it is that some leave the faith and why some just engage in unrepentant sin and there just doesn't seem to be any turning back. And it's, it's here. Let's read this together. Ready? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all, or that they all are not of us. What is he saying there? Well, the people who rejected the faith, the people who bought into this false teaching, never really belonged to them in the first place. So, I'm convinced that a Christian cannot lose his or her salvation. I'm convinced that if you turn away from the faith, if you leave the faith indefinitely and never return, you never belong to him in the beginning. Jesus told a parable of like, it's called the parable of the soils. There's four types of soil, and there's only one soil where the seed was planted, and it grew. It's a description of, the, of, the, uh, of those who genuine, genuinely believe and those who do not. That's a whole other sermon. I just want to lay the foundation for how you can know that you're a Christian. In fact, salvation, or what, like Jesus said, salvation is the equivalent of being, he called it being born again, that uh, unless you're born again, you, you cannot have eternal life, that salvation is not you meeting God in the middle and then you get salvation. Is it God's terms of salvation do not include that you meet him in the middle and he'll kind of meet you there. Because here's why. If you're dead, and how dead is dead spiritually? Pretty dead. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, he's the doctor in the house. Um, literally, he's a medical doctor. It's dead. Your cells are decomposing. You are dead. You are a carcass. You smell. You're dead. And, and there is no moving. So when it, when it comes to your salvation, God doesn't ask you to meet him in the middle. God meets you all the way. You understand? He meets you all the way. Why? Because you're dead. You cannot flinch in his direction unless you experience a resurrection. You need a spiritual resurrection for you to respond. Now, that's, a, that's another sermon. That will, maybe I'll address some other time down the road. But I just want you to understand Dead is dead, and, and there's nothing I contribute to my salvation. God meets me all the way. He, he, the Bible says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ Jesus, and, and so and he seated us with the heavenly realms, and that's who we are now. If you're a Christian, you're alive in him. The Bible says you are a new creation, and that is, I believe, what the Bible teaches, and that's what I read. In fact, I find great encouragement from that, and so should you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul wrote these words. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What, do I, what is he saying there? God is doing a work in you. Now, I said this last week and the week before and a bunch of other times, that the Christian life feels like a waltz. For me, anyway. Chuck Swindoll wrote a book, and he described the Christian life as two steps forward, one step back. It feels very much like that in my own life. Um, you know, like, I, I, like the Apostle Paul, wonder, why did I do that? Why did I sin? Knowing that I shouldn't have done that, I did it anyway. And, uh, and why can't I do, why don't I do the things I know I should be doing? 
It, well, the Bible says you're not going to, I believe the Bible teaches, you're not going to nail down the Christian life perfectly. You, I mean, like when we read through the Beatitudes, you're not going to show mercy perfectly. You, you're not going to be like an agent of God's presence, like of, of his peace perfectly. You, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to demonstrate that perfectly. But you, I asked you to raise your hands a couple of weeks ago about, you know, reflecting in your life, how different are you, like, can you see a difference between the first day you placed your faith and trust in Jesus and, and today, and all of you raised your hands? God is doing a work in your life. He's doing a work in my life. It's the evidence that you're saved, by the way. It's the evidence that you're a Christian. The evidence that you're a Christian is that God is changing you. The evidence that you're a Christian is that you have new appetites. These, 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 the things that didn't bother you before you were a Christian now bother you. And I could go on and on. There's another verse in the Bible that I really get a lot of comfort from. It's in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say he might bring it to completion. It just depends on what you do with your life. He says he's going to do it. When he began the work in you, that day that he, re- he, he made your dead spiritual carcass stand up in Jesus, he, he, he did that, and he promises that he'll bring it to completion to the day at the day of Jesus Christ. Well, what's the day of Jesus Christ? The judgment day. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, and this is a hill I will die on, that, uh, and I think I can prove it from the Bible, uh, that, that when I breathe my last breath and I stand before the presence of God, I know that he will call me son because of what Jesus Christ did in my life, because, because of, uh, of the redemption I experienced through Jesus Christ. And I also will know at that same very moment that I did nothing to earn it or to contribute to it. And, and so all of that, I just want to lay a foundation and then answer the question, how do you know that you're a Christian? Because before you know that you're, before you can answer that question, you've got to understand you contributed nothing. There's a song that we used to sing at that youth group, the, the youth group in that church that I attended. Uh, and in the line of that song, maybe some of you will, will recognize this. This is an old praise song. But the, the sentence in that song states this My Jesus, I will never let you go. You know, Jesus, lover of my soul. And then, my Jesus, I'll never let you go. I remember singing that at the first church I pastored in Denver, and, uh, and I just asked my friend Ryan, I said, Ryan, uh, do you think that that song's biblical? Like, do, where do we see in the Bible I'm holding on to Jesus? Anywhere. In fact, this is, this is, I believe this is true. If I am left to hold on to Jesus for, for the hope of my salvation, I will lose my salvation a thousand times over if it's dependent on me. So I asked him, I said, can we change the lyrics? He's like, well, yeah, what do you want to change them to? How about, my Jesus, you'll never let me go? Because that's John chapter 10. He's like, yeah, that sounds great, and we sang it that way. So there are four reasons, or four, four, four ways, or four answers, or I guess a fourfold response to how you can know that you're a Christian. One, and these will be, these will be brief. One, uh, the Christian is a person who understands that the salvation of their soul and the forgiveness of their sin is possible only through Jesus. 
You, if you think that, you, that, that Jesus is one of many ways, then I don't believe you're a Christian. You have not embraced the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. The Bible says that, if, that there's salvation found in who else? No one else but the name of Jesus. So the Christian is a person who understands that the salvation of his soul and the forgiveness of his sin is possible only through Jesus, period. Then I contribute nothing to it. Jesus did everything that is necessary for my salvation. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that there is salvation found in no one else except the name Jesus Christ, period. Um, and, And the Christian is a person who understands that who understands that, that, that the only solution to his or her sin problem is Jesus. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not any other religion, not, not just showing up to church every Sunday, Jesus. Like it's, it's important, I think, it, can, it, it may be important uh, if you prayed a prayer, but if you prayed that prayer just because you were reciting some lines on a piece of paper and it didn't really affect your heart regarding, uh, regarding who Jesus is, then it meant nothing because prayers don't save you, Jesus saves you. And so, so a Christian is a person who understands that sal- the salvation of their soul and the forgiveness of their sin is only possible through Jesus. There is no Christian who did not arrive at the cross of Christ who was not first poor in spirit. That's why I think the Beatitudes are teaching. What is poor in spirit? You come to the cross, empty hands. I have nothing to offer God in terms of my own righteousness. I need a righteousness outside of myself. I need someone who can remedy my sin problem. And the only person that that has been provided out of the great love that God has for me is Jesus. That's one. Two, uh, the Christian is a person whose sorrow over his sin has led him to Jesus as the only way to be forgiven of all sin and the only means to be reconciled to a God that he sinned against. Now, I know some of this is deep, but that's fine. The Bible's deep. Like, the, somebody said, if you want to find diamonds, you need to dig deep sometimes. But this is true. And it it should encourage you if you're a Christian in this room. The person who mourns in the Beatitudes is the person who grieves over their own sin and the sins of the world. I I think a good picture of what it looks like to mourn over your sin is in Psalm 51, when David mourned over his sin. He said, uh, let's read this together, ready? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know what's interesting about the context of this, of this psalm? Is David had an adulterous affair. And he was found out about it with this woman by the name of Bathsheba. Now he sinned against a lot of people. He had her husband murdered. Um, he, he took advantage of this woman. And he said in that psalm, against you and you only have I sinned. And the point that he's making is, at the end of the day, my great offense is I've offended you, a holy God. And uh, 
He mourned over it. He grieved over it. The Christian is a person whose sorrow over sin led him to Jesus as the only remedy for his sin. Period. Like, if you think, I don't think you can be a Christian if you think that you, uh, that you don't need Jesus to remedy your sin. So that's, that's, that's the second, thing, uh, second point to, you know, to the answer. Point three. Uh, the Christian is the person whose pride was overcome by their need for Jesus, a sorrow over his or her sin and the recognition of the lordship of Jesus. So what do, what do I mean by that? When, you are, when, you, when you're poor in spirit, you come with empty hands, and you, are truly, you understand your sin for what it is, will result in you grieving over your sin, then the next thing that we see in the Beatitudes is a willingness to subject your will to the will of the Father. Do you know what sin is? Here's what sin is. Sin is seeking to get your joy, your satisfaction, the meaning of life. You know, you, you fill in the blank out of anything else but God. That's what sin is. Sin is making an idol of something because what you do is you take, and it could be anything really. In fact, Tim Keller, a pastor, said that the heart is an idol factory. It is when you elevate anything above God. That's idolatry. That's what sin is, too. When you dive into sin, you, say, you basically say, I think this will give me the joy that I really want that God can't do for me. Does that make, you, know, you hear me? When you, come to the foot of the, when you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, which you are saying, if you truly believe who he claimed to be, is that he is the one that can satisfy what no idol can do. Idols will always rob you of the joy that they promise. Jesus promises a satisfaction that will never end. And when you come to the foot of the cross, when you come to Jesus, you come to Jesus who is Lord. There's no, when it comes to uh, being a Christian and being a disciple these are not two separate things. Like, it's not like, like phase one, I'm a Christian, and then eventually phase two possibly could be I'm a disciple. That doesn't work that way. In Jesus' economy of what it means to, to believe in him, if you're a Christian, you're also a disciple. If you're a disciple, you're also a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian, then you are a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian. And, uh, and, and, and in following him, he's Lord. He's Lord. He will make demands upon your life. Do you know how many times the word Lord is used to describe Jesus in the New Testament? At least 250 times. He is Lord. He is Lord. And if he is not Lord of your life, then something is off. That doesn't mean that your, that your Christian life is perfect. What it does mean is you recognize he's the one calling the shots. And, and, and I mean, <clears throat> if you're struggling with that, I mean, how do you reconcile him? You know, for those who say, well, he doesn't have to be Lord of my life, how do you reconcile that with some of the things that Jesus said? So Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10. Let's go. So whoever loves father or mother more than me is what? 
not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And let's read this together, ready? Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's lordship. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And everything else is a distant second in your life. It's got to be. As one pastor wrote of Jesus' expectation of the Christian, and the, the words are not on the screen here, he says, when Jesus called people to follow him, he was not seeking companions to be his sidekicks or admirers whom he could entertain with miracles. He was calling people to yield completely and unreservedly to his lordship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, was right when he said, when Christ, bids a man to come, when Christ calls a man to come and follow him, he bids him to come and die. The Christian who the Christian is one who who has yielded his life to the Lordship of Christ. It doesn't mean it looks perfect, but it does mean you recognize that who Jesus claimed to be is is true and nothing less. And then fourth, the Christian is a person who hungers and thirsts after Jesus. So the ushers, uh, whoever's distributing communion, can do that now. the Christian is a person who hungers and thirsts after Jesus. Like, when you arrive at the cross with empty hands, poor in spirit, and you're, you're one who's mourning over your sin, and, and you're meek in the sense that you surrender your will to the Father, you, what comes out of that is a hunger and thirst for Jesus. That's the evidence that you're alive in Him. That's the, levi- that's the evidence that you have new life in Jesus. You know, uh, to hunger and thirst for Jesus is a desire to know him. And not just cognitively, but much deeper than that. There's a Greek word used for, that Paul used for wanting to know Jesus. It's, It's a word, it's the word gnosko. It's an experiential knowledge. This is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. And I think it's describing the same thing what Jesus was talking about, about hungering and thirsting after him. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may gnosko him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's, that's, what, that's the hungering and thirsting for after Jesus, that if you are born again, if, you're, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the evidence that you've done so is a hunger and thirst for him. To be a Christian is to be a person who believes everything Jesus claimed to be and to act upon what you know to be true. So what does it mean to be a Christian? That everything Jesus said of himself is true and nothing less. Did you believe that? You might not be able to wrap your mind around it completely. Uh, you might not be able to wrap your mind completely around it, but, but you believe it. I'll give you some examples, just all from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, so the Christian hungers for him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, so the Christian seeks after him. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep, so the Christian finds safety in him. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, so the Christian follows him. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. So the Christian lives as though death is not the end of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the, and the life. So the, so, so the Christian trusts him. Jesus said, I am the true vine. So the Christian abides in him. When Jesus was in the upper room, he celebrated Passover, the Passover meal, with, with his disciples and all who were up in that room with him. I don't know how long before those moments in the upper room he said this, but Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's another one of those really awesome verses. I didn't even say at the beginning, but uh, it's not in my notes, but it's, I underlined it. It's in my Bible here. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus held up the bread. He said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to be your sin substitute. I'm going to experience the wrath of God in your place. You deserve to be on that cross, but I'm going there for you. And so every time you gather together, I want you to take this bread and eat it in remembrance of me. So let's eat together. Christian is the person who believes Jesus is all he claimed to be and nothing less. But here, I want to encourage you, just so you're not discouraged. What I mean by that is, I do not think that to be a Christian, you must hunger for Jesus, seek after Jesus, rest in the safety of Jesus, follow Jesus, live as though death does not bother you, trust Jesus, or abide in Jesus perfectly. We're all in this different, you know, in this different process. And we're all in different places in our walk and journey with Jesus. But what, you will, what will happen is that, that you will get to know Jesus as you follow him. You will, you will become more and more satisfied in him. As you grow in your relationship with him, you will, you will seek more and more after him. As you, as, you, as you follow him, you'll find your safety more confidently resting in him. Like all those things will become more and more true as you follow Jesus. He, went, he stood before, or he sat with his disciples in that upper room, and he, he said, you know, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He held up, he held up the cup, and he, he said, it's going to be poured out for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you. I'm going to redeem you. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, as fully human and fully God, was about to shed his blood for, for all who would believe in him. He held up the cup and he said, every time you gather together, I want you to drink this in remembrance of me. So let's drink together. You know, the Christian, this is what I do think is true. The Christian is a person who, is, who has discovered and is discovering that Jesus is a treasure more valuable than anything that they already have or what the world could offer you. One pastor said it this way. Um, he said, 
in describing in describing what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. He said, he, he said this, and I, I read this statement after I was already thinking about something that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. I'm going to end it here. The Apostle Paul said, if anyone has no love for Jesus, then may he be damned. You know what he was saying there? The evidence that you're a Christian is at the very least a love for Jesus, a genuine love for Jesus. Not a perfect love, but a genuine love for Jesus. Then I read this statement by this pastor who said this, to become a Christian, to be justified and finally saved is to embrace Christ. Embrace. Not take between your fingers as one gets a boarding pass, shows it twice, and then after the flight throws it away. To embrace he has me, and because he has me, I am falling more and more in love with him. That is, I think, the evidence that you belong to him. And if you're not a Christian, I would implore you, I would beg you, man, before you leave here, that you would, that you would tell him what you believe. Like, that is a, an appropriate expression to pray, to pray uh, and, and echo what you believe in your heart. To seek him and say, look, I, I, it's what I did on July 18th, 1991. I said, God, I don't know a whole lot about you, but I want Jesus in my life. I want to be a Christian. It wasn't the words that were magical. It was, the, it, it was what Jesus had done for me and my faith in response to that. And for the rest of us, man, I, I hope this is good news. I just wanted to set the stage for the rest of the Sermon on the, on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for... for <laughs> You came to us on your terms. You met us all the way. Before we could even flinch in your direction, you raised this dead carcass, this dead spiritual carcass to new life in your son. And now I am free, and so are my brothers and sisters in this room and those watching the live stream. They are, we are free in Jesus and you are doing a miracle in our lives, and you are molding and shaping us, and you promise that you will you'll continue this work until it's complete. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.